The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 450. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. This is B-R-I-O-N, B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get great deals on my New classes, existing classes at times. I have sales. You'll probably see a sale. Here it is. We've got, we're on our Thursday episode of the Brian McClanahan Show, the week going into Memorial Day. So check that email box if you're on my email list. You're probably going to get a sale coupon real brief period of time on some of my classes. This will be a good one. So Memorial Day sale. Check for that or Decoration Day, as they used to call it in the South, whatever you want to call it. Memorial Day, Decoration Day, same thing. So you look for that. Of course, I've got a new book coming out within a week or two. A lot of great stuff happening. You can also go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way there. Get a book plate if you want an autograph of one of my books. You can purchase a book. You can go to click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, get my logo on some cool stuff. Lots of great ways to support the show. Best way, though, of course, is to share the podcast around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're listening to The Brian McClanahan Show. Send me those so- show suggestions, excuse me, if you want to hear something, you want to hear me talk about something on the show. And remember, it has to be something I can talk about for 20 to 40 minutes, not something I can answer in about two to three minutes. So keep that in mind uh, for a podcast suggestion. But I do read your emails. I may not respond back to it. I do read them. Please don't feel offended if I don't respond back to your email. It's not that I don't love to hear from you. I appreciate all the support, all the things I get from you. And, of course, this podcast wouldn't exist without you. So I do appreciate that, and I appreciate you um, taking time to listen to it and share it around and let people know you're listening to it. It's always good to see and good to hear. Now, wrapping up the week with a piece that I found very interesting. It was actually published three years ago, but I just saw it the other day, and I think that the thing that gets into this, and it's something that the left and the right, or at least I should say the progressives, have to have. They need it. The progressives need an enemy in the United States. They need it. I mean, there has to be a good guy and there has to be a bad guy. Americans may have generally subscribed to this now. They need a good guy. They need a bad guy. They need somebody to blame everything on. Not just, and look, I mean, you could say, well, McClanahan, you do that too. You blamed it all on Alexander Hamilton. Well, Hamilton is problematic. Hamilton's not necessarily a bad guy, though. I think there's things I don't like about Hamilton, but I've said before, there's things I admire about Alexander Hamilton. I think that his ideas on, or his constitutional machinations created all kinds of problems. He's not a bad guy. I mean, Hamilton, if you just want to follow the logic of being a hero in the American War for Independence. He's a, that's doesn't, he's not a bad guy because of that. And I've used Hamilton many times to defend different things. So Hamilton is not overall a bad guy, 
But you see, I'm willing to, sh to say, well, there's good things about Hamilton and bad things. And I do this with a lot of people, even people that you might be shocked I would say it about. For example, I think with Abraham Lincoln. Reconstruction might have gone better had Abraham Lincoln not been assassinated in 1865. His political capital was certainly higher than that of Andrew Johnson, and so maybe Lincoln would have been able to work with the Republicans a little differently, and maybe Reconstruction goes a different direction entirely. Who knows? So Lincoln certainly had that going for him. But I think that uh, when we look at American myths, and I'm going to talk, I mentioned Lincoln because there is a Lincolnian myth in America. There's the good guys, the Lincolnians, and the bad guys, the Confederates. There's the good guy, Abraham Lincoln. You have to have a foil, and who is the bad guy? John C. Calhoun. You have to have the foil. For the left, it's anybody that's not now deemed acceptable. And I went to Barnes & Noble the other day. I went to their bookstore, and I went to the. I was looking at their history section, their new releases in history. And what did I see? And I should have taken a picture of this. Most of it, you had a couple of books on Lincoln, right? New books. There's a new book about Lincoln just about every single day. Why that happens, I'm not sure. Lincoln is the most boring topic in America in many ways. You, there's not a whole lot you can say about Lincoln anymore that's not has been said before, that's not boring. So, But there's a new book about Lincoln every day. We write up, American historians write about the same people and the same things all the time. Lincoln is acceptable to the left because, of course, he ended slavery, right? Emancipation Proclamation, he is okay. Now, the far left doesn't like Lincoln because, rightfully so, if they're going to be consistent, because Lincoln was pushing colonization up until the day he died. I know I've had a couple of people comment, oh, that's not true. Magnus's book is strained. You've got strained sources there. Magnus was looking at sources that no one else had looked at before to show that Lincoln really was thinking about this up until the day he died. Because Lincoln wasn't certain that uh, integration would ever happen in America in a peaceful way. So he's looking for colonization. But So if you're going to be the... The far left, the 1619 Project people, the Black Lives Matter people, if you're going to be that, well, then Lincoln is problematic. If you're going to be Lerone Bennett, well, then you know, he's certainly the president of racism and everything else. I mean, Lincoln was a racist. I mean, now you've, got, you've got the Lincolnites that try to, to try to downplay that stuff. And then, well, Frederick Douglass said he was the black man's president. And Lincoln changed his mind on race over time. I mean, you can't hold those 1858 comments against him because oh, by the time he got to 1862, he didn't believe that anymore. I, well, look, if you think that's true, then you've got real mental problems. You're just trying to create a myth. And I'm going to talk about why that's important. So Lincoln is the center of the most important myth in American history. That is the righteous union, the righteous cause myth, the righteous union and the bad confederacy, and of course, the awful John C. Calhoun. John C. Calhoun has become, in most people's minds, right, I mean, he's look, he's right next to Adolf Hitler in terms of bad people in, in uh, history. Right there next to Adolf Hitler. Now, Hitler was an awful guy. There's no question about that. John C. Calhoun so was not Hitler. He did not, he did not advocate genocide. 
in any way. He did not launch a war and invade other countries as a dictator of a state. He didn't do any of that. So you can't even compare the two in any way. And Calhoun's positions that people often say, well, I mean, he said this about slavery, the positive good, as I've pointed out before. Calhoun was saying things that have been said before for 100 years plus before he said them. If you want to see that, just read Larry Ties in his book, Pro-Slavery, which explodes this idea that John C. Calhoun sometime, somehow created the pro-slavery, the positive good uh, position in America. He just blows it out of the water. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't even... You shouldn't even say that after you read that book. There's no way you could think it at all. But you got people like Alan Gelzo and others on the right saying this thing, these things about John C. Calhoun. He created the positive good thesis in America. No, he didn't. Not in any way did he create that. So I think that this is important to understand, but you got to have a foil. And why do we need foils? You got the good guys, the good guys in blue, the bad guys in gray. You've got the good guys, the good Lincoln, the bad Calhoun. Jefferson Davis doesn't work anymore because nobody really cares about Jefferson Davis. But John C. Calhoun now, because he said these things, he matters. That's because Americans have accepted this idea that it has to be a good and a bad. And this piece gets into that. The title of it, in fact, is The Good Guy, Bad Guy Myth. Pop culture today is obsessed with the battle between good and evil. Traditional folktales never were. What changed, the question is? What changed? The good guy, bad guy myth. The first time we see Darth Vader doing more than heavy breathing in Star Wars, he's strangling a man to death. A few scenes later, he's blowing up a planet. He kills his subordinates, chokes people with his mind, does all kinds of things a good guy would never do. But then the nature of a bad guy is that he does things a good guy would never do. Good guys... Don't just fight for personal gain. They fight for what's right, their values. Now, see, this is important. What is the righteous cause myth all about in America? We talked about yesterday these commission names to uh, commission to rename all these Confederate bases. You've got the good guys, the union guys, and the bad guys. The good guys are fighting for, for what's right. But is that true? The good guys don't just fight for personal gain. We're union soldiers always fighting for, quote-unquote, What's right? Or were they fighting for personal gain? Richard Kreitner, who wrote a book entitled Break It Up, I talked about it. He's a rabid progressive. But he talks about secession. right? But Richard Kreitner gets on Twitter all the time, and he says a bunch of you know left-wing nonsense. But he, he's just drooling all over Thad Stevens. And there's a new book out, Thad Stevens, by Bruce Levine, uh, Bruce Levine, who is just like Kevin Levin, and that they uh, they're both these people that you know write popular histories that, and they say they're not popular or they're academic, but that uh, you know the left just drools all over because they're supposedly tearing down straw man arguments. And Bruce Levine has come out with this book on Thad Stevens. So Kreitner, I don't I can't remember if he's talking about that book or another book, but Kreitner. Oh, but Thad Stevens is so great. So I said, yeah, Thad Stevens is great. I mean, this is a guy that, you know, made a lot of money, voted because of iron foundries, made a lot of money during the war. So was the war about principles of personal gain? Well, sue him. Send in the police because a guy's voting his conscience. Yeah, he did. He sent in two million U.S. soldiers to go and enforce his tariff, essentially. 
So was the war about any, was it about values or was it about personal gain? How about all the Union soldiers that went out and took a paycheck? This is why they went and fought. Only the Confederates can have personal gain. I mean, only the Confederate side can be guys fighting for slavery or for, you know, something, for uh, some gain. You know, Union guys, oh, no, 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 these people are principled. These people are principled. They're out there freeing slaves. They even said they weren't doing that. But you have to have these, as the piece says, moral physics. Moral physics. There has to be a moral reason why you would launch a war and subjugate an entire section of people. It has to be for more reasons. It can't just be for occupation. It can't just be for some financial gain or to save the Union. That can't happen. No, no. It has to be for some altruistic reason that we're going to launch a war to invade and conquer somebody. We can't just go into Vietnam because there's money involved. We can't just go in the Middle East because there's money involved. Because oil, no, no, no. We have to do it to save education. We have to do it to liberate Iraqis or Kuwaitis or whatever it is. That's why we're there. It's the only reason we're there. We can't have uh, uh, Charles Lindbergh stand up and say, you know why we're going into World War II? Because you have the war party. We have bankers. We have these people pushing it. And of course, the one that really got him in trouble is when he said that the Jewish uh, population in America was for the war. Now, that got him in trouble because you can't say that people were self-interested in this. And you can understand why. Well, there was horrible things going on in Europe with the Jewish population. So certainly they were interested in it in trying to stop that problem. But you can't, I mean, it has to be some other reason. It can't just be financial. Franklin Roosevelt couldn't have been pushing this because people are going to get rich off this thing. No, 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 it can't, it can't be that. It has to be to make the world safer democracy or to beat the Nazis or to, sub, to, to crush slavery. It has to have something else. There has to be a good moral reason. This, this moral physics underlies not just Star Wars, but also film series such as Lord of the Rings and X-Men, as well as most Disney cartoons. What this author, the author is, Catherine Nichols, what Catherine Nichols is saying is that we live in a cartoon world of good guy, bad guy. Virtually all our mass culture narratives based on folklore have the same structure. Good guys battle bad guys for the moral future of society. No, no, not just all our mass culture narratives based on folklore. No, no, no. But you could say the war, the righteous cause myth, is a folklore. There's no righteous cause there. I mean, the, the one side likes to say it's a lost cause. They were, they were the good guys. They were fighting to, for independence and states' rights or whatever. No, 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 no. Wait a second. They weren't fighting for any of that. They're fighting to keep slaves. So... You've got to create this myth. And then on the other side, well, no, no, we're not fighting to save the union. We're fighting to free slaves. Fighting for these things to help people out. You've got the proposition nation nonsense. The, the United States is founded on the proposition that all men are created equal. Well, this is the Claremont group, the, Lincoln, the Lincolnites, the, the right the progressive right, along with the progressive left. I mean, Nicole Hannah-Jones says the same things. America was founded on a proposition all men are created, but they didn't follow it. They didn't care about it. They just said it. In some ways, she's right about that. 
You can look at example after example where they really didn't, they downplayed it. They really didn't care about that. My point in all this is that, but, but uh, you know, Anton's saying, well, you can't say that. Well, why not? So what if they did? These are still great men. So what if they downplayed it? It could be used later, but so what if they did it at the time? They're still great men because of all the things that they did. Still great men. We can look at them and say, well, yeah, we didn't agree with them on these things. But you know what? They're still great men. So she says, these tropes are all over our movies and comic books, and Narnia and the Hawk and Hogwarts, and yet they don't exist in any folktales, myths, or ancient epics. In Marvel Comics, Thor has to be worthy of his hammer, and he proves his worth with moral qualities. But in ancient myth, Thor is a god with powers and motives beyond any such idea as worthiness. This is true. Thor is not a great... Look, Nordic theology is full of all kinds of good and... We say good and bad, but within these people... They're, they're capricious. They're just like us. Likes, desires, wants, dislikes. In old folk tales, no one fights for values. Individual stories might show the virtues of honesty or hospitality, but there's no agreement among folk tales about which actions are good or bad. This is true. When characters get their comeuppance for disobeying advice, for example, there is likely another similar story in which the protagonist survives only because he disobeys advice. Defending a consistent set of values is so central to the logic of newer plots that the stories themselves are often reshaped to create values for characters such as Thor and Loki, who in the 16th century Icelandic Ada had personalities rather than consistent moral orientations. This is true. These were people with personalities, and you could take good things from them and bad things from them. You weighed their personalities for worth. You wrote a biography of an important person and you showed they're good and they're bad, or at least you just showed their personality and you told the story, and then you said, this is a great man because of this. He has these foils, but he still is a great man. You still could find reasons to like him or to admire him or to appreciate that person. Stories from an oral tradition never have anything like a modern good guy or a bad guy in them, despite the reputation for being moralizing. In stories such as Jack and the Beanstalk or Sleeping Beauty, just who is the good guy? Jack is the protagonist we're meant to root for, yet he has no ethical justification for stealing the giant's things. This is true. Does Sleeping Beauty care about goodness? Does anyone fight crime? Even tales that can be made to seem like they are about good versus evil, such as the story of Cinderella, do not hinge on so simple a moral dichotomy. In traditional oral versions, Cinderella merely needs to be beautiful to make the story work. And the three little pigs, neither pigs nor wolf, display tactics that the other side wouldn't want, wouldn't stoop to. It's just a question of who gets dinner verse first, not good versus evil. Exactly. The moral story is it's not, it's not even identified. It's just a story. Maybe sometimes the big bad wolf is the important character, the good guy. You don't know. The situation is more complex in epics such as the Iliad, which does have two teams as well as characters who wrestle with moral meanings. But the teams don't represent the clash of two sets of values in the same way that modern good guys and bad guys do. Neither Achilles nor Hector stands for values that the other side cannot abide, nor are they fighting to protect the world from the other team. They don't symbolize anything but themselves, and they, they talk about war often. They never cite their values as the reason to fight the good fight. The ostensibly moral face-off between good and evil is a recent invention that evolved in concert with modern nationalism, and ultimately it gives voice to a political vision, not an ethical one. Hallelujah, 100% correct. 
Why is it that we have to have the Lincolnian myth? Because of American nationalism. It's a political vision. Centralization is good. This vision of America is good. This one is bad. Jeffersonian vision of America is bad. Lincolnian vision of America is good. That's why you have to have it. Now, Lincoln would say, well, I'm fighting for Jefferson's vision of America because I believe in the proposition nation. Well, no, 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 wait a second here. You made that up. Even Gary Will says that. You revolutionized the revolution. You made this up. But the Iliad, now, the important thing about that, the great classical scholar, Basil Gildersleeve, actually compared the war to the Iliad. It's the American Iliad. It's what it is. So did Ludwell Johnson. It's the, it's the American Iliad. It is two sides, two teams... Not a clash of values. They all have the same kind of thing. Even McPherson points this out. They're all fighting for liberty. They're all fighting for the founding fathers. They're all fighting for the Constitution. It's just two different interpretations of the thing. So no one is good and no one is bad in that story. It's just that one wins and the other loses. That's how it used to be described. But you can't do that anymore. You've got to have a good guy and a bad guy. And in the modern society, pop culture, the South has to be bad and the North has to be good. You have to get rid of all the traitors on Confederate bases and ships and names and streets and everything, statues, because they're bad and we have the good. But what about Thad Stevens and his self-interested motivation for going for supporting the war and making money off of it? Is that good? Or is that bad? What about Lincoln's statements on race? Are those good or are those bad? See, you, you got you got to you got to scrub, so to speak, some of the stuff out of the way because it's inconvenient for the story. Most folklore scholarship since the Second World War has been concerned with the archetypes or commonalities among folk tales. The implicit drive being that if the myths and stories of all nations had more in common that, than divided them, then people of all nations could likewise have more in common than divide us. It was a radical idea when earlier folktales had been published specifically to show how people in one nation were unlike those in another. In her study of folklore from the beast to the blonde, the English author and critic Marina Warner rejects a reading of folktales popularized by the American child psychologist Bruno Battleheim as a set of analogies for our psychological and developmental struggles. Warner argues instead that external circumstances make these stories resonate with readers and listeners through the centuries. Still, both scholars want to trace the common types, tropes, I'm sorry, folk tales and fairy tales insofar as they stay the same or similar throughout the centuries. Novelists and filmmakers who base their work on folklore also seem to focus on commonalities. George Lucas very explicitly based Star Wars on Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which describes the journey of a figure such as Luke Skywalker as a human universal. J.R.R. Tolkien used his scholarship of old English epics to recast the stories in an alternative, timeless landscape. And many comic books explicitly or implicitly recycle the ancient myths and legends, keeping alive story threads shared by stories old, new, and old, or that old stories from different social societies around the world share with each other. Less discussed is the historic shift that altered the nature of so many of our modern retellings of folklore. To wit, the idea that people on opposite sides of conflicts have different moral qualities and fight over their values. Were the Union and Confederate soldiers really of different moral qualities? We know there were Union soldiers who owned slaves. We know there were Confederate soldiers that didn't. We know there were Union soldiers that were racist. We know there were Confederate soldiers that were racist. Did they have different moral qualities? We know some wanted to fight for slavery, and some wanted to fight to free slaves. 
We know some we know Southerners are fighting against slavery, their own enslavement to the North. Just as Northerners are supposedly fighting. This is what James again, James McPherson says this stuff. This is important. You can't the, the moral qualities are not much different in the two sides. Lincoln himself said it. Other than the South is saying we're fighting against invasion. We're fighting against our own enslavement. That shift lies in the good guy, bad guy dichotomy, where people no longer fight over who gets dinner or who gets Helen of Troy, but over who gets to change or improve society's values. It's not over Lincoln just saving the Union, who gets dinner, who gets the spoils. It's over, are we going to free slaves? It had to be something else. The war had to be about slavery because if it wasn't, if it's not, then Alan Gelzo has nothing to say about Confederates. Well, they're against, they're against the United States. They're traitors. So this is where it turns. Well, wait a second here. These people weren't fighting against slavery. Okay, they weren't, but they're fighting, they're, they're fighting for the United States. These people are fighting against the United States. They're traitors. So you've you, you got to change it. There's got to be a good guy and a bad guy. Good guys stand up for what they believe in and are willing to die for a cause. This trope is so omnipresent in our modern stories, movies, books, even our political metaphors that it is sometimes difficult to see how new it is or how bizarre it looks considering, considering in light of either ethics or storytelling. But were Southerners not standing up for their values as well? I mean, independence, self-determination, whatever it was. The guy that didn't own a slave, was he not, was he not standing up for that? Good guys, bad guys. When the, when, I'm sorry, when the Grimm brothers wrote down their local folktales in the 19th century, their aim was to use them to define the German Volk and unite the German people into a modern nation. The Grimms were students of the philosophy of Johann Gottfried von Herder, who emphasized the role of language in folk traditions in defining values. In his treatise on the origin of language, von Herder argued that language was the natural origin of the understanding and that the German patriotic spirit resided in the way that the nation's language and history developed over time. Von Herder and the Grimms were proponents of the then-new idea that the citizens of a nation should be bound by a common set of values, not by kinship or land use. Think about that. <clears throat> this way we're looking at the nation in the United States, a Lincolnian nation. It's a Lincolnian system, Lincolnian values, Americanism, set on these values. Not just a place, not just Southerners living in a place and Northerners invading. we got to stop them. They're going to take our farm. No, no, no. It's not that. It's the, it's the image. It's fighting for the proposition. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His truth is marching on. This is what it becomes about. For the Grimm, stories such as Godfather Death or the knapsack, the hat and the horn revealed the pure form of thought that arose from the language. The corollary of uniting the Volk through a Storified set of essential characteristics and values is that those outside the culture were seen as lacking the values Germans consider their own. We'll take this and change that with Lincoln North-South. As Northerners consider their own, Von Herder, Lincoln, might have understood the potential for mass violence in this society because he praised the wonderful variety of human cultures. Specifically, he believed that German Jews should have equal rights to German Christians. Still, the nationalist potential of the Grimm Brothers project was gradually amplified as its influence spread across Europe, and folklorists began writing books of national folklore specifically to define their own national character. Not least, many modern nations went on to realize the explosive possibilities for abuse and the mode of thinking that casts the other as a kind of moral monster. Well, think of what's happening in America. The South is the moral monster. John C. Calhoun is the moral monster. 
There's nothing redeeming about them, nothing redeeming about Southerners or anything, except for the ones who say, we, we, we repent. In her book, The Hard Facts of the Grimm's Fairy Tales, the American scholar Maria Tarter remarks on the way that Wilhelm Grimm would slip in, say adages about the importance of keeping promises. She argued that rather than coming to terms with the absence of moral order, he persisted in adding moral pronouncements even when there was no moral. Such additions established the idea that it was values, not just dinner at stake, in the conflicts that these stories dramatize. No doubt the Grimm's additions influenced Bettelheim, Campbell, and other folklorists who argued for the inherent morality of folktales, even if they had not always been told as moral fables. As part of this new nationalist consciousness, other authors started changing the old stories to make a moral distinction between, for example, Robin Hood and the Sheriff of Nottingham before Joseph Rickson's 1795 retelling of the legends. Earlier written stories about the outlaw mostly showed him carousing in the forest with his merry men. He didn't rob from the rich to give to the poor until Ritson's version, written to inspire a British populist uprising after the French Revolution. Ritson's rendering was so popular that modern retellings of Robin Hood, such as Disney's 1973 cartoon or the film Prince of Thieves, are more centrally about, or about outlaw moral obligations than outlaw hijinks. The Sheriff of Nottingham was transformed from a simple antagonist to someone who symbolized the abuses of power against the powerless. Even within a single nation, Robin Hood, or a single household, Cinderella, every scale of conflict was restaged as a conflict of values. Again, this is our moral fairy tale about the war, about the proposition nation. It's a moral fairy tale. It's not just about these guys seeking independence. No, no, no. There had to be some grand moral thing going on here. It's all a fairy tale. It's all a myth. It's a fairy tale. This is why I've called it that. I love this piece. Or consider the legend of King Arthur in the 12th century. Poets written about him were often French because King Arthur wasn't yet closely associated with the soul of Britain. What's more, his adversaries were often literally monsters rather than people who symbolized moral weaknesses. By the early 19th century, when Tennyson wrote Ideals of the King, King Arthur becomes an ideal of a specifically British manhood, and he, be, and he battles human characters who represent moral frailties. By the 20th century, the word Camelot came to mean a kingdom too idealistic to survive on Earth. In other words, a utopia. Too idealistic to survive on Earth. Once the idea of national values entered our storytelling, the particular, I'm sorry, peculiar moral physics underlying the phenomenon of good guys versus bad guys has been remarkably consistent. One telling feature is that characters frequently change size in conflicts. If a character's identity resides in his values, then when he changes his mind about a moral question, he's essentially swapping sides or defecting. This is not always acknowledged. For example, when in the PBS series Power of Myth, the journalist Bill Moyers discussed when Campbell, with Campbell how many ancient tropes Star Wars de- deployed, they didn't consider how bizarre it would have seemed to the ancient storytellers that Darth Vader changed his mind about anger and hatred and switched sides in his war with Luke and the rebels. Contrast with the Iliad, where Achilles doesn't become Trojan when he is angry at Agamemnon. Neither the Greeks nor the Trojans stand for some set of human strengths or frailties. Since a conflict is not a metaphor for some internal battle of anger versus love, switching sides because of a transport of feeling would be incoherent. In Star Wars, the opposing teams each represent a set of human properties. What side Darth Vader fights on is therefore absolutely dependent on whether anger or love is foremost in his heart. Bad guys change their minds and become good guys in exactly the same way in countless ostensibly folkloric modern stories. Lord of the Rings, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and Harry Potter. When a bad character has a change of heart, it's always a cathartic emotional moment. 
since what's at stake for a character is losing the central part of his identity. Another particularly peculiarity, I'm sorry, in the moral physics of good guys versus bad is that the bad guys have no loyalty and routinely punish their own. Whether it's the Sheriff of Nottingham starving his own people or Darth Vader killing his subordinates, bad guys are cavalier with human life and they rebuke their allies for petty transgressions. This has been true since the earliest modern bad guys, though it scarcely exists among older adversaries who might be hungry for human flesh but don't kill their own. Good guys, on the other hand, accept all applicants into the fold and prove their loyalty even when their teammates transgress. Consider Friar Tuck getting drunk on ale when Robin Hood looks the other way, or Luke Skywalker welcoming the roguish Han Solo on side. Good guys work with rogues, oddballs, and ex-bad guys, plus their battles often hinge on someone who is treated badly by the bad guys crossing over and becoming a good guy. Forgiving characters their wicked deeds is an emotional climax in many good guy, bad guy stories. Indeed, it's essential that the good side is a motley crew that will never, ever reject a fellow foot soldier. So, yeah, I mean, but we don't think about this with some things, right? So, if, uh, what we do, I mean, a guy that was fighting for the Confederacy and switches sides, well, he's a good guy now. Can't do that. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't be on the bad side. You've got to switch sides. Now you're the good guy. Because you've, you've seen the more. You've seen the light. There's good guys, bad guys. Again, the, this is a point of pride that seems incoherent in the context of pre-modern storytelling. Not only do people in ancient stories not switch sides in fights, but Achilles, say, would never win because his army was composed of the rejects from the Trojans. In old stories, great warriors aren't scrappy recruits. Therefore, the moral education. They're experts. Stories about good guys and bad guys are implicitly moral in the sense that they invest an individual's entire social identity in him not changing his mind about a moral issue, perversely end up discouraging any moral deliberation. Instead of anguishing over the multidimensional characters in conflict, as we find in the Iliad or, uh, or Hamlet, such stories rigidly categorize people according to the values they symbolize, flattening all the deliberation and imagination of ethical action into a single thumbs up or thumbs down. Either a person is acceptable for team good or he belongs to team evil. Good guy, bad guy narratives might not possess any moral sophistication, but they do promote social stability, and they're useful for getting people to sign up for armies and fight in wars with other nations. 100%. you got to have the Lincoln myth. It's good. This is good. We're the good guys. We're the force of good. This is actually a, a, a phrase used by the U.S. Army. We're the force of good by the U.S. Army. Their values feel like morality, and the association with folklore and mythology lends them a patina of legitimacy, but still they don't arise from a moral vision. They are rooted instead in a political vision, which is why they don't help us deliberate or think more deeply about the meaning of our actions. Like the original Grimm stories, they're a political tool designed to bind nations together. It's no coincidence that good guy, bad guy movies, comic books, and games have large, impassioned, and volatile fandoms. Even the word fandom suggests the idea of a nation or kingdom. What's more, the moral physics of these stories about superheroes fighting the good fight or battling to save the world does not commend genuine empowerment. The one thing the good guys teach us is that people on the other team aren't like us. In fact, they're so bad and the stakes are so high that we have to forgive every transgression by our own team in order to win. Hey, you know Sherman burned out Atlanta, but he was willing to give them a scrap of cracker if they would just put down their side. I mean, but I'm going to starve you if you don't do what you're supposed to do. But if you keep doing that, I'm going to starve you. We have to forgive all that. Forget all that. Well, I know we burned Columbia, South Carolina, but, you know, they deserved it. They deserved it. I know we stole stuff and we did things in the Union Army, but these people deserved it. They deserved worse. 
They're bad guys. They're traitors. And they're immoral traitors. When I talk with Andrea Pitzer, the author of One Long Night, A Global History of Concentration Camps, about the rise of the idea that people on opposite sides of conflicts have different moral qualities, she told me, Three inventions collided to make concentration camps possible. Barbed wire, atomic weapons, and the belief that whole categories of people should be locked up. The deplorables should be locked up. When we read, watch, and tell stories of good guys warring against bad guys, we're essentially persuading ourselves that our opponents would not be fighting us. Indeed, they would not be on the other team at all if they had any loyalty or valued human life. Think about what the left does now. They say you people don't. These people don't value human life. These people are mean. They're They're evil. In short, we are rehearsing the idea that moral qualities belong to categories of people rather than individuals. Is the Grimm's and von Herder's vision taken to its logical nationalist conclusion that implies that categories of people should be locked up? Watching Wonder Woman at the end of the 2017 movie give a speech about preemptively forgiving humanity for all the inevitable offenses of the Second World War, I was yet remind, I was reminded yet again that stories of good guys and bad guys actually make a virtue of letting the home team in a conflict get away with any expedient atrocity true because they're the good guys the unions the good guys confederacy these southerners all deserved it these people are the good guys you can do whatever you want this is true and this is why i like this and this is what i think is going on this base renaming all that kind of stuff it has to do with the good guys bad guys you got good good union guys bad confederate guys doesn't matter they're just bad they're not even worth redemption not worth honoring at all there's nothing about them that's good Nothing. They're the bad guys. And what are you saying about all the descendants of all these people running around the South? They're just descendants of bad guys. You need to repent. This is the story we're getting. This is Lincolnian myth. This is something that has to be there. And this is what people, well, we got to have Lincoln to save things. This is Colin Woodard. How we're going to save this union from breaking up. We got to have a Lincolnian myth. We all got to subscribe to it. These people have to be shunned, all these bad, evil people out here in history. we got to boot them aside, because if we can just do that, we can all get on board with this, and we can all be one good, happy family. So the left's not going to want to do it at all. I mean, they won't. And then you've got, the, you've got real history, which gets in the way of all this stuff. Well, you, gotta, you, can't, you can't say bad things about Lincoln. You can't say bad things about Thad Stevens. You can't do that. You can't do any of that. And while we might say there's things, well, the founding generation, okay, but, you know, they really weren't racist and they really believed in ending slavery. They really did. They just, uh, they just, there's too many things working against. So, well, you know what the problem was? The South was involved in that, too. They just couldn't, couldn't see past the South. Got to have the bad guy. You got to have the moral bad guy. And that's always going to be that section of the United States. That's why I like this piece, because it just completely explodes the Lincolnian myth. The righteous cause myth is the greatest and most disastrous myth, along with the proposition nation myth, in modern America. It's awful, and it causes more problems than anything else. And the left and the right, the right is just as responsible for this as the left ever was. All right. Hope you enjoyed this week at the Brian McClanahan Show. Be looking for that sale. And also, the Abbey Valley Institute podcast, you want to get me five days a week, catch me over there. I'll see you next week. See you then.